Hey, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark, here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor? I feel pretty good. Uh, this will be obvious for the quarantine, but I feel like a content mole man. How are you feeling? I, I'm feeling like I'm starting to forget the concept <laughs> of outside and a restaurant and <laughs> movie theater and everything. Yep. Uh, I've been, you know, we've been watching a lot of just like different TV and there's... It's like really depressing to like there's scenes where people hug or like go to restaurants and you're like, oh, it's like that used to be a completely normal thing. And then now you're like, wow, like a crowd. Yeah. You're like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> shaking, <laughs> shaking hands. What are you doing? You're, Stop. Like meeting someone. Yeah. I don't know. It's been, uh, it's been rough. Mm-hmm. Going to keep going. Going to keep going. Yes. Yeah. But anyways, I thought. I thought today we'd play another game of um, Styles from Nowhere. I picked out a stack of books here. Sweet. And dive into some random pages and see what you think it might be. See what Yeah, <laughs> see well, what this, like. this is a one-sided Styles from Nowhere because Mark texts me right before the podcast. He's like, yeah, you got your books? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so I will be the only guess, guesser, guessy, whatever, whatever that term is. All right. Yeah, let's try it out then. So the uh, I'll tell you the cover of this book has the author standing there with like a hand on the hip kind of pose. Mm-hmm. And then behind him is a mirror, like bigger version of that same pose mirror image. So it's, <laughs> hmm. he's on a double. Okay. It's uh, kind of funny looking, but all right, I'm going to jump right in here. Page 30... Or 27. Out of the naked rain to a robe, to innocence shrouding in, then the decoration of God and religious sweetness. Like when I had that fist fight with Jack Steen, it was in my mind strongly. Fist fight with Jack Steen? This was earlier, all the junkies in Ross's room tying up and shooting with Pusher. You know Pusher. Well, I took my clothes off there too. It was all part of the same flip. Hmm. Talking about fist fights and stuff, I was like, maybe Hemingway, but then it kind of got, got a little bit too hip, so maybe it has something to do with, like, Jack Kerouac. <laughs> is it Jack Kerouac or yeah, something? Yeah, you like, got it. You actually it got is? it. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, because it's, like, something, like, when if he's talking about people, like, shooting up and, like, using hip names and stuff like that, I was like, yeah, sounds like Kerouac. <laughs> That's a good call. Dude, Styles from Nowhere continues to surprise. Like, if you really just think about it for two seconds, it's like, who would write that? I mean, I know that we are, like, probably have some similar bookshelves, but still. Yeah. I mean, that that was pretty... Can you picture the cover now? He's, Mm -hmm. like, hand on the hip, staring at the camera with his cool hair. Yeah. And whatever kind of shirt that is. What book is that? The Subterraneans. The subterranean. I don't even know it's if it's one I've of the heard shorter one. ones. It's only like yeah. 110 pages. Hmm. All right. Well, yeah. Jack Kerouac can identify you from one paragraph. If you yeah. can identify your writing style from one paragraph, I think you're on a. I think you're on a good wavelength. All right. Next one. Uh, page 42. I consist of a little body and a soul. Now to this little body, all things are indifferent, for it is not able to perceive differences. But to the understanding, only those things are indifferent that are not the works of its own activity. 
but whatever things are the works of its own activity, all these are in its power. And of these, however, only those that are done with reference to the present, for as to the future and the past activities of the mind, even these are indifferent for the present. <laughs> How was that little maze? I don't know. Some philosopher. Yeah, that was like flipping back and forth. Like uh, it, there, you can like take that two ways. It's like it's either a paragraph that you're just supposed to like burn through, like this guy's being silly, or it's like you're supposed to analyze every sentence, like flipping back and forth to try to figure it out. Um, I honestly I mean, have no philosophy. Guess. Philosophy is very close to satire of philosophy. <laughs> Yeah, or I mean, I don't know Voltaire. If you're saying satire of philosophy, then maybe. Oh Voltaire. no, I'm just saying that in general. Like sometimes you read some yeah. philosophy and it it, it reads seems... like a, a parody. <laughs> yeah, of like itself. a joke. I mean, that did seem sort of like some weird philosophical thing, but I I can't guess anything past the genre. Okay, well, he shares a a name with me, sort of. Okay. He shares a name with you, sort of. So either Mark or Gagne. Um, shit, still don't know. All right, Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius. Okay, well, Medi yeah, that's like, yeah, that's some sort of like you're reading that for existential. But isn't that Marcus Aurelius is like that guy where it's like you often find on the internet people being like, "Bro, you can learn a lot from Marcus Aurelius." Universal. Yeah, that's what like, this is. The the meditations. Yeah. He was the Roman emperor mm -hmm. and uh kind of a master of stoicism. Hmm. I always wonder whenever I think of writers from that long ago, I wonder if they wrote themselves or dictated to someone else. Cuz that's like a thing that you study in like some books where it's like this was dictated to someone else writing it down, so it could also yeah. be like lost in in translation there's a book about um there's a book written by a roman emperor called the conquest of gaul that's like that where it's like it was like dictated to someone else who like butchered the like his job basically <laughs> it's funny yeah nice so one one for two some beat stuff and some old philosophy stuff mm-hmm so this one will be interesting here. Let me see. I got to find something that's not super obvious. <laughs> <laughs> that's already a hint in itself. Hold on. Yeah, this can't this can't be super random. Okay. Artistic skill. Or sorry, I'll I'll go one step back. Mm -hmm. Art is the way to the absolute and to the essence of human life. The aim of art is not the one-sided promotion of spirit, soul, and senses, but the opening of all human capacities, thought, feeling, will, to the light rhythm of the world of nature. So will the voiceless voice be heard and the self be brought into harmony with it. Hmm. Hmm. Kind of feels like that, like it, it feels like maybe... I covered that Murakami book, Killing Commentador, but I just don't think that you have that book. So I'm kind of working backwards from if you have that book or not. Um, yeah, like ruminate. And also you said you gave this a little bit of a spoiler that like if you had said like a name or something, it would have like 
Like the name of a character? Uh, mm. Not quite a name, but an action. Okay. Or a series of coordinated actions. Okay, say, <laughs> say those actions, because I need a lifeline. Um, above all, footwork should be easy and relaxing. The feet are kept at a comfortable distance apart, according to the individual, without any strain or awkwardness. By now, the reader should see the unrealistic approach of the traditional classical footwork stances. They are slow and awkward, and to put it plainly, nobody moves like that in a fight. Hmm. I don't know, like Hemingway talking about some boxing or bullshit? <laughs> no, there's uh, someone a little bit tougher. Hmm. Hmm. No clue. Giving up. <laughs> I'm reading from the uh, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do. Bruce Lee. Oh, so, so a different, Bruce Lee. different okay, kind yeah, of yeah. philosopher. Yes, a different kind of philosopher. Art and the art of footwork. Yeah, this is a cool book I bought when I was in high school. Those Bruce Lee books, if I recall, are like sort of rare, right? It's like it's like the type of thing where you have to pay too much on Amazon because like one person has it, right? Yeah, well, uh, I got they they reprinted some of them in two thousand eleven. Mm. Looks like when I that's probably when I got it. Okay, looking at the thing now, Bruce Lee, a legend. Yeah, you can see some of his like uh, workout regiments and then mm-hmm. yeah, philosophy and also just like specific kind of moves and stuff. It's interesting. So, be water, my friend. Exactly. Next one. Uh, quite a pivot, hmm. I'll say. I rushed onto the platform. Yes, the open sea, but with a few scattered pieces of ice and moving icebergs. A long stretch of sea, a world of birds in the air, and myriads of fishes under those waters, which varied from intense blue to olive green according to the bottom. The thermometer marked three degrees centigrade above zero. It was comparatively spring, shut up as we were behind this iceberg, whose lengthened mass was dimly seen on our northern horizon. Hmm. First of all, it sounds cool. Sounds like some sort of very adventurous locale. I'll say that that uh, a kind of cheeky hint is that was just kind of scratching on the surface of what the book is about. Ooh, the surface, an iceberg below the surface. Um, isn't there, there's like a Dan Brown book that's about them like digging into the, it's called like Deception Point or something like that. <laughs> that's I not what you're, that in my no, shelf though. That, that's what you're not what you're talking about. But there is a Dan Brown book called Deception Point where they like yeah. find something like an alien being like deep in an iceberg. Mm. Nice little shitting on Dan Brown there, Mark, by the way. No. <laughs> Wouldn't even be on my bookshelf. <laughs> um, maybe as a doorstop. Mm. Some book about an iceberg? No, not quite the iceberg. More the uh, the water part. More the, oh, like 10,000 leagues under the sea or something? 20,000 leagues. <laughs> You're off by a factor of two. Yeah, 20,000. 20,000 20, leagues. But don't people often say on the internet that 20,000 leagues actually refers to the distance that they went, not how deep they were? I 
I think so. I, I think that's a thing. Things. Like once you start to investigate that story, it's actually not about because when you think twenty thousand leagues, you think that they like went down really deep, but it's actually about them going like a certain distance. And then ducking under. I wonder how long okay. twenty thousand leagues is, because my grandfather was a naval submarine captain, so it would be pretty badass if he had if he could like lay claim to having traveled twenty thousand leagues. I'm sure he has. <laughs> Used to stay, they used to stay underwater for like a month, which is like Damn. fucked up. <laughs> Talk about quarantine. Yeah, geez. I know. We could learn from uh, from them. Mm. I got to read this at some point, though, because, yeah, it's a, it's a classic. Yeah. I, there, there's something to do with a squid in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Not too, not too bad. Uh, la- last one here. This is uh, another interesting one. Non-conventional. <laughs> Got to really look for a spot without names here. For some reason, every time you say a spot without names, it um, automatically makes me think it's Japanese. Because that's like a dead giveaway. But continue. Uh, this is going to be tough. Hold on. <laughs> a lot of a lot of names in here. This is uh harder than I expected. Hold on. Just say some names. I don't know. Uh, who knows? Unless the uh, name is like the name of the novel. <laughs> <laughs> even even discounting this last curiosity, is there nobody who is prepared to look into this bizarre glut of disappearances and see what emerges? Can it be that our increasingly shrill and nervous judiciary are actually afraid to look too far under this particular rug for fear of what they might find hidden there? The new frontiersman repeats it warning. Talented and prominent Americans are being spirited away from under our noses. Isn't it time somebody found out just where they're going? Hmm. So you said you wanted to avoid names, which gives me sort of like a little bit of a clue. And then the context of it, the content was all about like, disappearing people and paranoia which brings me towards pinchin thomas pinchin or pinchon okay. or however we say it um sort of like a paranoia about americans disappearing hmm yeah that would, that would be my guess <laughs> it's sort of pinchin-esque and i guess we can just talk about that connection but i'm reading from uh i I grabbed the watchman off my off my shelf interesting very hard to find a spot that's not like the night owls right this or whatever but and yeah but you actually do it do bring yeah again like that i like playing styles from nowhere because it seems like these weird connections always pop up like when you think about it watchman kind of is sort of like weirdly pension e like, if he had, like, written, like, something about superheroes, that's, like, the whole thing, right? That, like, Alan Moore, like, wrote something about superheroes, and he, like, took it to the, you know, nth, heady. Yeah. nth degree and really crazy. And it's, like, that probably would... they Their styles probably aren't too dissimilar at that moment in time. Hmm. Yeah, there's an interesting connection. That's kind Now of... I just want a pension superhero novel, <laughs> which I'm sure is yeah. in the works. Well... Well, there is that there is that one part in Gravity's Rainbow where it just kind of turns into some strange Marvel type 
there's this, it's hard to even wrap my head around it, reading it like mm-hmm. a few times over. <laughs> like, uh, there is a part that's kind of like that. Are you talking about the part with the octopus and like those people who like, yeah, no, it, it, it's very close to the end. Hmm. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. I have to read it again. Yeah. Anyways, there's probably some stuff in there. Like I told you the, the very, uh, a book that I didn't get all the way through sadly against the day, but there's like, there's like this awesome kind of like adventure team of people who like ride a, a dirigible, like a, like a, you know, like a Zeppelin, like through yeah. time <laughs> in that book. So that's kind of like weirdly like superhero like. That was my favorite part of that book. If anyone's yeah. read that book, another one to revisit. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes you just gotta like go at it twice, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Then, then like the lead up to what you've already read, mm-hmm. kind of easier. Okay. Um. So yeah, I think I'm gonna do a sort of Styles from Nowhere intro to to what I read this week. So I might as well just jump right into that. All right. Uh, and then, yeah, talking about being in the quarantine and staying at home and all that, I, I recently, one thing to help me with that, I, I recently got a new tablet. And, yeah, I used it a lot this week, mostly nice. for reading. And the cool part about that is, you know, ton of free books on the public domain. Um, oh, yeah. And the cool part about public domain is we can, you know, do whatever we want with it now. So I decided to go super shitty my book report this week because I can just read a ton from it and not feel guilty at all. <laughs> Don't have to cut a check True. for anybody. Uh, so yeah, let's see if you can guess what I read based on the tone of the introduction okay. to the book. This book is merely a personal narrative and not a pretentious history or a philosophical dissertation. It is a record of several years of variegated, variegated vagabondizing and its object is rather to help the resting reader while away an idle hour than afflict him with metaphysics or goad him with science. Still, there is information in the volume, information concerning an interesting episode in the history of the Far West, about which no books have been written by persons who were on the ground in person and saw the happenings of the time with their own eyes. I allude to the rise, growth, and culmination of the silver mining fever in Nevada, a curious episode in some respects, the only one of its peculiar kind that has occurred in the land, and the only one indeed that is likely to occur in it. Yes, take it all around, there is quite a good deal of information in the book. I regret this very much, but really it could not be helped. Information appears to stew out of me naturally. Sometimes it have seemed to me that I would give worlds if I could retain my facts, but it cannot be. The more I cock up the sources and the tighter I get, the more I leak wisdom. Therefore, I can only claim indulgence at the hands of the reader not justification it's weird again like styles from i don't think that you read moby dick but that sounds like something that that because that's like what like moby dick is like the common complaint with it right is that it's like half of like a textbook about whales that no one cares about yeah um, so it sounds like something, it, does it, does it ring true that it's something along that vein where it's like, you're sort of reading this thing, but then it also feels like you're in school, like reading like a nonfiction that's fiction. Uh, not, yes, yeah, sort of. It's more like it, it is nonfiction. It's more of a travel diary kind of, hmm. but it's not Moby Dick because it's 
for the most part landlocked in the mm-hmm. American West. Well, yeah. Nevada, also, there would be no Utah. there would be no like intro written by Melville in that same yeah. like <laughs> modern like this is what I decided to write. But um, also, you're right about the time. Think about the time of the uh, gold rush, the silver rush. Hmm. Weird. Something that is, you know, public domain. But that introduction had such sort of like a modern candidness to it. Like the reason I wrote this book was blah. You don't usually get that with people from that long ago. Yeah. There's a select few Hmm. that talked like that, had that tone. Hmm. So what I what I got here is a book by Samuel Clemens, aka Mark Twain. Ooh, yeah. okay, so, yes, a man ahead of his time. Yeah, and so he's got a lot of stuff on the public domain, and mm-hmm. uh, so I'm a Mark with a C, and I wouldn't <laughs> normally trust one of those ones with a K. Right, I don't I don't like Mark with a K. Yeah, yeah, but this one it's a pen name, so it's not that right. big of a it's not. I, he, I can make an exception. He there. did make an error, but it's a forgivable error. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like what I was kind of explaining, this is it's not a novel, more like a travel diary, and it covers like six years of his life. So it's pretty when you awesome. Think of, like a yeah, travel exactly. diary when, of Mark Twain. <laughs> I know when when you think of Twain, you think of other literary giants, like you know, you mostly think of their internal life, or you know, you picture them at home mm-hmm. writing or studying or just being mostly introspective or you mm-hmm. know observing and all that stuff, but not really going on adventures. Mm-hmm. you know i think they get uh, broken up into like different camps yeah but know? there's not many that are like adventurers yeah. the thrill-seeking novelists you know mm-hmm. anyways like um but from reading this book i learned that twain kind of definitely got around a lot and he had a lot of adventures and it's it's funny like like you we were saying just saying kind of with the connection of like watchmen and maybe discovering that it has some sort of something in common with like Pynchon or like the feel of Pynchon like Mm -hmm. throughout reading this book uh of Twain's I couldn't help but think of the Hobbit like (laughs) it mirrored it in parts weird it's kind of Twain's like unexpected journey and I'm Mm -hmm. gonna try and justify that throughout this (laughs) so the book's called Roughing It Mm -hmm. and I was looking for something to read that was about not staying inside (laughs) (laughs) exactly and it was also free so um but yeah it's his unexpected journey so it's about Mm -hmm. him leaving the south i think he was in mississippi at around 26 years old Mm -hmm. uh so he was he's traveling west to work for his brother who became the secretary to the governor of nevada so he was established in nevada he was going to go work for him so like the first part of the book is describing like a two-week stagecoach journey through hmm. middle america and the rockies like a oregon trail kind of thing i'm gonna put this out there and see because you said you know it, it goes along with the hobbit so far to me this sounds like the movie black sheep with chris farley <laughs> you've seen that movie yes or his brother's like a famous politician and then he's like i gotta go help him on his campaign <laughs> he's <Yeah>. like an idiot <laughs> Exactly. Hmm, One of those great kind of adventure stories, Mm -hmm. like road road trip movies. Right. There's there's a lot of those. But so, yeah, the two-week stagecoach journey, and they're kind of, they're bringing like mail with them. They're kind of sleeping on mail bags and stuff, and, you know, rough. they're roughing it, just like the book. 
um, yeah, through Middle America, through the Rockies, they visit Salt Lake City, meet all the Mormons, um, you know, and Twain's just at the at the time, you know, writing a ton about the people he meets there, just making observations and kind of honing his writing skills. You know, he was only 26. He didn't publish, he hadn't published anything. Um, and yeah, just making observations of what he sees. So I was going to read, just read a part right here. Like that's just an example of that. So, you know, he's traveling through the desert. Hmm. The coyote is a living, breathing allegory of want. He is always hungry. He is always poor out of luck and friendless. The meanest creatures despise him, and even the fleas would desert him for a velocipede. He is so spiritless and cowardly that even while his exposed teeth are pretending a threat, the rest of his face is apologizing for it. And he is so homely, so scrawny and ribby and coarse-haired and pitiful. When he sees you, he lifts his lip and lets out a flash of his teeth. And then he turns a little out of the course he was pursuing, depresses his head a bit, and strikes a long, soft-footed trot through the sagebrush, glancing over his shoulder at you from time to time till he is about out of easy pistol range. And then he stops and take a takes a deliberate survey of you. He will trot 50 yards and stop again, another 50 and stop again. And finally, the gray of his gliding body blends with the gray of the sagebrush, and he disappears. All this is when you make no demonstration against him, but if you do... He develops a livelier interest in his journey and instantly electrifies his heels and puts such a deal of real estate between himself and your weapon that by the time you have raised the hammer, you see that you need a mini rifle. And by the time you have got him in line, you need a rifled cannon. And by the time you have drawn a bead on him, you see well enough that nothing but an unusually long-winded streak of lightning could reach him where he is now. But if you start a swift-footed dog after him, you will enjoy it ever so much especially if it is a dog that has a good opinion of himself and has been brought up to think he knows something about speed. Hmm. Interesting. I never had the experience of trying to shoot a coyote, but there was a lot of gems in there of like interesting experiences of coming out West. Like when you, cause I drove across the country to come out to California and there's like this weird sort of like tone shift somewhere like midway through Texas, you know, like the middle of yeah. like the actual like middle of America. And it's interesting, like all the stuff like I was not familiar with coyotes until you get out here. But a lot of those were true statements and talking about like disappearing into the sagebrush and stuff. It's like old sage is like old, wild sage is only really like out like in the desert. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, you you can see him kind of starting his like little witty remarks on everything, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And he's talking about yeah, shooting stuff, and he's he's got he describes his 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 uh, six shooter at one point. It's kind of funny. Um, so anyway, it's like what happens with this trip of his is like the the plan to just go to Nevada and work for his brother like falls apart pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I forget exactly what happens, but. Over the course of six years or so, he does a bunch of different things. And uh, I think a big uh, catalyst in that is like the silver rush that mm. happened in Nevada, uh, like outside of Carson City. You know, it's mm -hmm. something that kind of happens while they're there. And that's another connection to The Hobbit. It's like they're searching for treasure or whatever. Like right. that, it's journey for treasure, kind <laughs> of. So score another, uh, another mark for a connection to The Hobbit. Uh, he ends up working for a couple newspapers when he goes broke. 
you know, because the Silver Rush, obviously, he didn't become like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he didn't strike it, strike mm-hmm. it, strike it rich or whatever. No one um, did. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah, he works for a couple newspapers in, in Nevada where, like, it's like the Wild West still. So he's kind of, he talks about, like, how he wrote a bunch of ridiculous headlines about all the violent crimes that were happening in the Wild <laughs> West. Um, and so that happens in a lot of the book. And then eventually he ends up, in just a random turn, he, they end up taking a trip to Hawaii. Whoa. And he tries, picture this, like, he tries out surfing. Mark Twain surfing. <laughs> well, you know, we're only thinking of the old man Mark Twain who like looks like the colonel, you know, from KFC. I know, <laughs> but just think of think of the time period though. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't even known as surfing. He calls it he calls it surf bathing hmm. in the book. And Great. this is like hundred years before that Hawaii was an American like state. Whoa, yeah, that's really weird. Yeah. So they just, go out uh, to some like island. How did they even yeah, get yeah. there? Like a massive boat journey? Yeah, they took a well, they took a small boat. He hmm. talks about how miserable that is. It, like, and that's another. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that after. But that's another thing. He has a lot of like Hobbit, Hobbit-like complaints about like his comfort. Mm-hmm. You know. But let me just read the part about surfing. In one place, we came upon a large company of naked natives of both sexes and all ages, amusing themselves with the national pastime of surf bathing. Each of them would paddle three or four hundred yards out to sea, taking a short board with him, and then face the shore and wait for a particularly prodigious billow to come along. At the right moment, he would fling his board upon its foamy crest and himself upon the board, and here he would come whizzing by like a bombshell. It did not seem that a lightning express train could shoot along at a more hair-lifting speed. I tried surf bathing once, subsequently, but made a failure of it. I got the board placed right, and at the right moment too, but missed the connection myself. The board struck the shore in three quarters of a second without any cargo, and I struck the bottom about the same time with a couple of barrels of water in me. None but natives ever master the art of surf bathing thoroughly. <laughs> so he pulled a little uh, Johnny Tsunami. Really? Definitely. That's, and that's just, I, I would never have pictured that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like it's just funny to find out there like different things. Like, oh yeah, have you read that thing that Mark Twain wrote about surfing? <laughs> what? Just I didn't know there was any connection. <laughs> so, anyways, it also uh, seems like such a sort of like you. I mean, again, Hobbit-like, but also like thinking of the idea of just leaving the country to go into like there. It's like yeah, there's this place where it's like an island. It's very sort of like mysterious and heroic. Like oh, let's just get on a boat and go there yeah this is like not gps this is not anything it's i like... know navigating that in eight <laughs> in the 1860s yeah weird i think like yeah dur- during this it was maybe i don't know if it was during the civil war or whatever but um, no, i don't really know the years of the civil war but that that wasn't touched upon in this book at all but uh, so anyways, I'm going to make my case, continue my case for the book being an inspiration for The Hobbit. 1861 to 1865 would be like the traditional like like claimed years of the of the Civil War. Uh, okay, so that that is exactly what was going on in this book. And I think what I think the history of of Mark Twain, I think he was like he was a Confederate soldier for like a week and then he dropped, <laughs> he quit it. I think that's what happened because he was from the South. Hmm, weird. 
Yeah. I think he was in it and then got out. Um, but anyways, so you got the uh, journey of like misfits or whatever, for the Hobbit. They're after treasure. Um, there's parts where he's not like exactly longing for home, but he has like a very Hobbit-like view of the food they're being served. Mm-hmm. Like he talks about how shitty like the coffee is. Mm-hmm. And... I usually have six meals a day. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. <laughs> and like how the... Uh... Then <laughs> so, uh, I'll just read a quick sentence. Then he poured us a beverage, which he called the Slum Gullion. And it's, it is hard to think he was not inspired when he named it. It pretended to be tea, but there was too much dish rag. And there was sand and old bacon rind in it to deceive the intelligent traveler. He had no sugar and no milk, not even a spoon to stir the ingredients with. We could not eat the bread or the meat, nor drink the slumgullion. And when I looked at that melancholy vinegar cruet, I thought of the anecdote, a very, very old one even at that day, of the traveler who had sat down at the table which he had nothing on it but a mackerel and a pot of mustard. He asked the landlord if this was all. The landlord said, all? Why thunder and lightning? I shouldn't think there was a mackerel enough for six, but I don't like mackerel. Oh, then help yourself to the mustard. <laughs> um, yeah, so like little just things about food and stuff. Okay, and then here's the part that, that I was just laughing to myself because it was so random and an obvious connection. There's a part in this book where they're literally attacked by spiders like <laughs> <laughs> oh my god there you go that's the there's the hobbit yeah um so let me find that part so what happens is they're they're doing like the panning for gold or whatever or they're in they're in nevada looking for silver mm-hmm. and they he's with a bunch of like different prospectors and surveyors or whatever and they've been like they start catching like tarantulas and put them in like little glass jars or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he keeps talking, talking about how like Carson city is super windy and like gusts of wind, like can tear off roofs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So they have that happen. And then, uh, yeah, something, they have a big collection of tarantulas sitting on a <laughs> shelf somewhere in glass. <laughs> so then let me just read that part. It's the last thing I'm going to read. The surveyors brought back more tarantulas with them, and so we had quite a menagerie arranged along the shelves of the room. Some of these spiders could straddle over a common saucer with their hairy muscular legs, and when their feelings were hurt or their dignity offended, they were the wickedest-looking desperados the animal world can furnish. If their glass prison houses were touched ever so lightly, they were up and spoiling for a fight in a minute. Starchy? Proud? Indeed, they would take up a straw and pick their teeth like a member of Congress. There was, as usual, a furious zephyr blowing the first night of the brigade's return, and about midnight the roof of an adjoining stable blew off, and a corner of it came crashing through the side of our ranch. There was a simultaneous awakening, and a tumultuous muster of the brigade in the dark, and a general tumbling and sprawling over each other in the narrow aisle between the bedrows. In the midst of the turmoil, Bob H. sprung out of a sound sleep and knocked down a shelf with his head. Instantly he shouted, "'Turn out, boys, the tarantulas is loose!' (laughs) <laughs> the warning ever sounded so dreadful. Nobody tried any longer to leave the room lest he might step on a tarantula. Every man groped for a trunk or a bed and jumped on it. Then followed the strangest silence, a silence of grisly suspense it was too, waiting, expectancy, fear. 
It was as dark as pitch, and one had to imagine the spectacle of those fourteen scantily clad men roosting gingerly on trunks and beds, for not a thing could be seen. Then came occasional little interruptions of the silence, and one could recognize a man and tell his locality by his voice, or locate any other sound a sufferer made by his gropings or changes of position. The occasional voices were not given to much speaking. You simply heard a gentle ejaculation of, Ow! followed by a solid thump, and then you knew the gentleman had felt a hairy blanket or something touch his bare skin, and had skipped from a bed to the floor. Hmm. Creepy. Yeah. So, yeah, they, it, that, what else do you need to, <laughs> to say that this is the Hobbit? There's yeah. also, a, there's a dragon. Um, <laughs> Smaug. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just kept, kept finding little things that made me think of, think of the Hobbit. That's so hilarious. I have to wonder, yeah, I have to wonder if Tolkien read this. Maybe you have to wonder, you, you can never know. Yeah, they no. were. I j- actually, I as you said that, I looked up. They were alive at the same time. Token born in eighteen ninety two, and Mark Twain died in nineteen ten. Okay, so there might be something there. Had a good eighteen year overlap. Yeah. So I'll say this. Really, it wasn't a page turner, but you know, parts mm-hmm. of it were interesting. How is the experience uh, I, of, because I find on Kindle that I just end up reading faster. Yeah, I think I read it pretty fast. Mm-hmm. I will say, I have to I have to put this in here. There are some chapters that I, I skipped completely <laughs> and that I should probably be scrubbed from the book because they have some really shitty observations and opinions about different groups of people typical at that, that period in time. That's, mm-hmm. that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, that comes up, especially with, you know, writing from around that time. Yeah. And ironically, that's not too bad of a transition to some of the themes in my book that I, that I read okay. this week. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll say I wasn't prepared for it, but I probably should have expected it. Right. And anyways, I mean, I read it so that you don't have to. So exactly. <laughs> I just I want to point out one last anecdote here. Uh, there's one point in the book where he runs into an old friend. He like just randomly runs into it, someone he used to know, and he he was like, "Yeah, he stopped being my friend because like I dropped a watermelon on his head from a three story window." Mm, good and reason. I was just tr- I was just trying to picture out picture how that didn't kill the guy. It seems like <laughs> that would kill someone. Three stories, I think, would maybe not kill you, but definitely like that would end a friendship. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's pretty bad. But, it's just yeah. funny the type. Actually, I was talking with a friend the other day. The type of stuff that is there's a lot of stuff that has happened in the world that you like can't really fathom, but also things that you can't really imagine. Like a friend of mine was saying, he was watching some baseball game from the '70s or something, and it was like Yankees versus Dodgers, and the and the crowd was like throwing firecrackers like into what? the into the field and stuff. And it's like, yeah, like pre, you know, like. You just like the world gets stranger and stranger the farther that you go back. Yeah. Um, you know, so I have no I have no um issue accepting that Mark Twain hit someone over the head from three stories with a watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um so yeah, that was that was roughing it. And I got my one star review here. Nice. And this is from eighteen seventy two. Mm-hmm. So it was it's about his life from 1861 to 1867, but he didn't put it out until 1872. Cool. 
Uh, one star review here from Kim says, dirty, sweaty, boring, long. Very short, uh, <laughs> quick review. Very, that yeah, made me think go. of that cooking show, uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Yeah. You could probably find, I wonder if you could find the same one star review for The Hobbit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> same thing. Yeah. All right. Cool. So, good job. I will just jump right into my book. My book is actually a connection of, um, I guess I'll ask, I think I've asked you this before, but now we're, this is episode 51, 51 episodes in, have, has doing the podcasts, not just in terms of like, like, uh, you know, looking out for page counts and stuff like that, but has anything, have you chosen a book for the podcast based on what we've talked about? So like, your your reading journey being affected by what we've talked about on the podcast like picked up a new book because of we talked about whatever or have some books uh, on the shelf yeah mm-hmm. i've definitely i bought some stuff because of this but not mm-hmm. i haven't gotten to that exactly yeah. so this is one of the first ones that the you know for me that the podcast is sort of like folding in on itself Um, you had mentioned before, you mentioned this book before as way of, I think you did a section once of celebrity readers, um, when we were talking about how like the kid who plays Harry Potter reads Bulgakov, Daniel Radcliffe reads Bulgakov. Didn't you say something about like Shakira's favorite book or something, (laughs) something like that? Uh, Um, yeah. Let me see if I can find that while we talk about it. And one of the things that you talked about during that segment is, um... You talked about how Joan Didion, an author that I covered and her um, book of essays called The White Album, she once told the Paris Review that she never started on a large scale reading project without revisiting a novel called Victory by Joseph Conrad. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And we were like, we've never heard of that. It just comes out of the blue. So shortly after that episode, I was, uh, you know, in a used bookstore as I'm won't to be and uh there sitting on the shelf for a dollar 50 was victory by joseph conrad so that's my book this week <laughs> nice. um so yeah basically with keeping you know uh joan didion's writing style in mind i also just dove into this novel head first i know a little bit about joseph conrad kind of more from his influence on modern film history with um you've seen uh the famous Coppola movie, his like most famous, Apocalypse Now. Have you seen it? Yeah. So Apocalypse Now is kind of like loosely based on Heart of Darkness mm-hmm. um, by Joseph Conrad. And he is kind of more well known for the first half of his career, which had um, Heart of Darkness. And it also had Lord Jim. I'm sure you've heard of that book, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so Victory is kind of. I have a I have a big I have a big collection that I bought. It's called the the Conrad Ar- Argosy, I think. Hmm. It's just this giant book. I wonder if it's got victory in it. Maybe. Check that. It's, uh, you know, Conrad writes, like, he has written, like, dozens of books. Um, and 
I think I can't even count on his his Wikipedia is one of those Wikipedias that was so big I couldn't even dive into it because obviously he's like oh really important writer in the English language he was born in Poland yeah. like he I went, wasn't gonna bother with Mark Twain's either <laughs> yeah exactly like there's just one so it's just like okay this is too much to pick apart but yeah. it's obvious that you know he spent some time on like trading ships and stuff like that a lot of his novels concern um, you know, being on this on islands or in the sea or something like that. Um, so Heart of Darkness, just for some context and years, Heart of Darkness and Lord Jim are 1899 to 1900. And then Victory, like 10 novels later, is 1915. Um, and I also thought that that was a good follow up to like two episodes ago. I, you know, I was um, telling you about that book, Kokoro by Natsumi Saseki. Yeah. So this is like, I kind of, the final nail in the coffin for if I was going to read Victory or not was that I saw that they're published kind of like around the same time, which is interesting because it's like, that Sumi Soseki would be like a, someone who's like one of the first people I've read of before World War II. And then this Joseph Conrad thing is like also a story from around that same period, but obviously going to be from a ridiculously different perspective. So just like around that time period. Uh, let me get into victory. First of all, I can also say as a disclaimer, I didn't end up skipping anything in the book, but this story concerns like a mix of basically white people slash white men in like the context of Southeast Asia and the islands around Thailand and Borneo. I don't even know if it's still called Borneo, but it's basically like you're in these chain of islands, like a tropical type thing. Okay. And you're definitely still feeling the effects and seeing kind of like the there's like a class difference in the like the colonialism has been established and it's like you know the asian population and native people of that like place and time are kind of like subservient to the white main characters so that's one thing but it does go a step further and that there is a character that i'll get into later on down the line where it's like okay like you know obviously this is from over a hundred years ago now so maybe a slightly bit of leeway but there is like there was some flavors of like okay maybe he's writing about asians and like hasn't doesn't really know much about them <laughs> you know like yellow skin and like slanted eyes and you're like okay this is like racist but whatever um so you're so there's that context there but to get into victory i could definitely see like why joan didion references it as something that would be influential to her because it's like it's a very psychological book it's one of those books that is probably you know ahead of its time in turn of terms of like internal emotional intelligence of the characters it's a very simple story that could almost be sort of pulpy on its surf surface um and to dive into the plot there's four sections the first section i actually thought was one of the coolest in terms of structure it's basically an unnamed narrator in the first in first he's only in the first section only in like the very first thing he it's kind of from the perspective of you learn about this guy named Axel Heist, who is like a Swedish, um, you know, like white guy from London who ended up being in the islands because he came here to establish like a coal company that then went bust. 
And he's basically this guy who is a hermit who lives like basically the company went downhill, but he still lives on the island by himself, like basically a complete hermit. (laughs) So but the structure of the first part was really intriguing because it was like basically these people meeting in a hotel gossiping about that person. So like the the main character of the novel is just being gossiped about by other people. Like that's how like the island kind of like social structure works. Um, but then eventually in act two, three and four, you're basically just thrown into the narrative where Axel is like one of the main characters. Um, it's, this is definitely that like a type of novel that it's like, a what does he know? What does she know? What do they know that those other two people don't know? Mm -hmm. And the way that it all, the way that it all breaks down is that basically there's this guy who owns the hotel where those gossipy people were meeting all the time. It's like one of the white establishments in, in one of the more like populated islands with a town. And the guy who owns the hotel, this guy named Schoenberg hates heist kind of like for no reason. Like he just thinks he's like, like he's just, is fixated on him and how he hates him and stuff like that. And what ends up happening is it's partially a novel about kind of breaking down like this guy who was a hermit. You learn a little bit of his history and how his father like basically died when he was young and it affected him so much that he decided to just wander the planet. Like he leaves London and Western society and he's just like kind of emotionless. And I think that that's something like Conrad makes that character really well established and like his reaction to other people and like society is definitely sort of unique. So I could see where Joan Didion is like kind of like obsessed with that character specifically. That's what she told the Paris review that it's like that one character is very like interesting the way he reacts to different things. Okay. That's where it kind of came from. Yeah. That's where it comes from. And then, so getting more into the plot point, this guy Schoenberg owes this hotel that he sometimes brings entertainment to the hotel, like dancing girls or people to play cards or bands and stuff like that. And one, you know, stretch of a week when Heist has to leave the island to take care of some, you know, like business in town, he meets one of the dancing girls at the hotel and basically like senses immediately that he wants to save her and like liberate her. And like, he's this very kind soul that is like, doesn't really interact with people, but when people need help, he like knows it. So he ends up kind of stealing her away. And as you learn later, the hotel owner was like sort of a creepy guy who was like cornering her, like trying to be like, I love you. Like, let's, you know, like get something going or whatever. And she's like really terrified of him. So she leaves the hotel environment and her like life as like, this person who's just like a woman dancing on stage and she goes to live with heist like in the middle of nowhere like that's like her plan which is sort of like an anti-plan like she just doesn't know what she's doing yeah and then on the heels of that the guy who hates the who hates heist and owns the hotel these two other guys kind of show up and they're like sort of evil in a weird way it reminded me of um Master and Margarita by Bulgakov because one of them is sort of like this tall, lanky, like specter of a man who he they he has this way of describing him as like he's almost like a zombie, like a thin, ghostly type guy. <laughs> and then and then his henchman, who's sort of like his secretary, is described as being very cat-like with a lot of metaphors about like his cat's eyes and his teeth and the way that he moved and stuff. And that's the same thing from Master and Margarita is like this cat, this evil cat, you know, is around or whatever. 
And so from this point on in the novel, it's like those two criminal guys and one of their like henchmen and then heist and the girl are like all you really care about. And it goes deep into the psyches of basically those guys go out, try to get to heist Island. They almost die on the way to the Island and then heist like kind of is hospitable to them, but then slowly learns over time that he's probably, they're probably there to kill him. And they are, uh, they think he's rich, but he's not. So it's all this like different, like they think this, she knows this, they think this or whatever. Um, and I kind of could see, like, I, I couldn't find this in any of the one-star reviews, but I could definitely see someone being like, as a one-star review, like some of the reactions between the people don't make sense. But then I think you have to take a step back and think like people don't make sense, you know? Yeah. Like the, it's kind that of a novel. True. Yeah. It, it's kind of a novel about that too. Like when Heist and his crazy, uh, henchmen get there his name is mr ricardo like when they first get there mr ricardo he's keeping it secret that he knows that there's a woman on the island and he's keeping it secret from everyone and he kind of like sexually assaults her like he like kind of like attacks her and then she doesn't bring it up to heist like she keeps it like a secret and you know i think the general like especially like even in modern times like the, the me too movement a lot of people's like first reaction is like you would tell someone or like you would like do this. And it's like, well, that's not necessarily true. Like people who are like victimized, they, they like clam up in weird ways. And I found him to be accurate in that way where she doesn't just blurt out like this guy came to my room and like assaulted me. She kind of like keeps it low key. Cause she doesn't know like where her position in life is. Cause she's such, she's like marooned on this Island with a guy that she's known for like two months and then yeah. all the and then so all of a sudden these guys are like basically going to kill him. Um, the end of the novel, section four, kind of is where it becomes less psychological and more like pulpy with like who has a gun, who doesn't have a gun. Um, there's also a really cool some character. Action. Yeah, there's some action, and also there's a cool character who basically is like heists servant on the island named wang and that's where some of like the weird like racism comes in but he is like a cool character who is described as being able to kind of like disappear in and out of the jungle at will kind of like almost like ghost like um but you know i think it's a typical thing that like some of the power we've we've kind of hit on this on like almost every book we read that it's like if it's good then it's gonna have those juicy little bits of like he okay he's just a good writer and it's like the same kind of thing here where there's just juicy little sections where it doesn't really matter what the book is about because he just has like cool thoughts about characters and like yeah. their reactions to each other. So here's a short paragraph from page 76. This is about kind of the deep seriousness of why Heist is the way he is, which is basically like a silent hermit who only really like has an intuition about helping people. Uh, three years of such companionship at that plastic and impressionable age were bound to leave in the boy a profound mistrust of life. The young man learned to reflect, which is a destructive process, a reckoning of the cost. It is not the clear-sighted who lead the world. Great achievements are accomplished in a blessed, warm mental fog, blessed, warm mental fog, which the pitiless cold blast of the, his father's analysis had blown away from the sun. So it's like... That's cool. I think that's like yeah, a cool sentence where it's like you're basically going to accomplish more if you reflect less because learning to reflect is a destructive process that just keeps you like down. Um, another cool quote, not too far away from that. A simple sentence 
is um, for it's a failure that makes a man enter into himself and reckon up his resources. So there's like a kind of like a mysterious sort of like heist feels that he's failed himself and his father. So he kind of retreats into himself and like only like this is definitely like one of those novels where it's like a man is an island or whatever, or is a man an island. And, you know, he's literally on an island. And when he <laughs> when he brings the influence of this woman into his life, like that's when things start to get stirred up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, overall, I wasn't like blown away. Like, oh, like it, it is a novel that I won't spoil the ending because it towards from section three into section four, it starts to basically be only about like, oh, what's going to happen? It's not that the end blew my mind or anything, but it was cool, like like the way that these characters sort of like interact with each other. Um, so yeah, uh, I definitely say that Joan Didion led us down a path to like a kind of interesting novel, but and it's definitely something like, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, but obviously completely do judge a book by its cover. And I would never pick this up if What's I had. What's the cover on this one? Uh, the cover is the man who you would eventually learn to be heist is sitting there in a chair reading and the woman who comes to the island is standing next to him. And you can see it's like one of those wraparound covers and you can see out their doors like some simple like huts and shacks because they basically live in like a bungalow that was supposed to be like where people live to work on this coal mine. But then when it all went bust, it's like heist is just like, I'm going to chill here. Um, but yeah, so sort of like an island pulp fiction drama thing, lots of thinking between people. I mean, Heist literally reads books in his bungalow under an oil painting of his father who like ruined his psyche. <laughs> so it's like, you know, lots of representative stuff, very good descriptions of nature, you know, like storms rolling in, like, what is that going to mean for the characters? So it's sort of representative in that way. Um, but if you read a little bit about Joseph Conrad, you know, he's one of those guys, oh, he was like the beginning of the modern novel. And when this book first came out, I think some people were like, oh, this is the decline of his career. But then when you read it back now, it's like, yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it kind of it's it's definitely uh, like a book that would be turned into a movie and it's been turned into like several movies. There's there's a movie starring Willem Dafoe and Dafoe plays Axel Heist. I mean, I would watch that, but I think Dafoe would be a better Mr. Ricardo, Martin Ricardo, like a cat-like assassin. <laughs> then <laughs> I actually pictured um, Fraser Kelsey Graham <laughs> as the like lone person on the island. Um, and I was actually thinking maybe I'll post some pictures on Twitter of who I cast in my brain of all the different people because the the characters are very rock solid in this book. Like there's no confusion over like who is who. Um, it's very like you know everything that's happening. Nice. Um, and so, so I guess I'm I'm most curious about uh, so Didion. I, I found I found the uh, mm-hmm. I found the old episode. Uh, uh, thing I had here from the celebrity readers mm-hmm. and yeah, Joan Didion favorite novel is Joseph Conrad's victory. She says there was a time where she wouldn't write a new novel until she reread it. Mm-hmm. And she says the story is told third hand. It's not a story. The narrator even heard from someone who experienced it. The narrator seems to have heard it from people he runs into. So there's this fantastic distancing of the narrative, mm-hmm. except that when you're in the middle of it, it remains very immediate 
It's incredibly skillful. It opens up the possibilities of a novel. It makes it seem worth doing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that she's most commenting on the first section where it's like hearsay. And then he kind of like imperceptively melts it into that you're there's like an omniscient narrator who knows like what everyone is thinking and feeling. But you kind of don't feel that, which I think also probably Joan Didion has like a power of doing that. It's like, okay, I'm reading like like I told you, like in the White Album, there's like an article about how California receives its irrigation water. And you're yeah. like reading about that. And then all of a sudden you're like, why does this feel like I'm reading like a cool story? <laughs> you know, and that other one about the governor's mansion in California, it's like, I think she, yeah, I could definitely see the relationship between how Conrad, yeah, it becomes like, it's like, oh, this is like, you're hearing a story from an outside perspective. And then eventually it's just, you're in it fully, um, seamlessly. So yeah, that's what she's studying there, I would say. That's cool. Are you are you inspired to write? Um, not as much as I have been by other authors, uh, but it was still still good stuff. Uh, maybe I won't end up writing some stuff like Didion, which I didn't have high hopes for anyway. Um, so yeah, my one star review is Chrissy from Goodreads. She says, what is this for a story? I've completed it and I still don't know. Is it a tale of adventure? Is it what Conrad meant it to be? It moves too slowly. All of the action takes place at the end. Is it a romance, a love story? It can't be classified as such either. The characters are too aloof too lu and too lukewarm toward each other. Uh, another perfect example of a one star review that I think proves my point. <laughs> is it a love story? Is it a romance? Is it a tale of adventure? And does that matter? Probably not. Um, <laughs> probably not. So yeah, um, Victory by Joseph Conrad. Pretty good. Nice. Um, thanks for tuning in, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us most Sundays, but sometimes throughout the week. For instance, we're recording this on Tuesday <laughs> on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. You can also email us, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us comments, suggestions, corrections, or whatever you're feeling, and we'll see you next time. See ya.